Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your stand-in host the next few weeks, Corey Pop Pop Knockreiner, as Mark is on vacation for a few weeks. Ryan likes that pop pop part. Uh, so joining me today as our guest co-host is... Ryan, as he said, insert Terminator, I'm back soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> In case you didn't remember Ryan from a previous podcast, he's part of the WatchGuard Threat Lab Malware Analyst team, or the Threat Lab, and he does malware analysts for our endpoint team. So a very cool guy. We'll be talking about malware today. It's always good to have his expertise. On today's episode, we cover a potentially huge PII leak affecting our Australian friends, some new info-stealing malware as a service, and an NSA inside attacker caught by the FBI. So let's put on our clean suits and wait on in. So welcome back to the news, everybody. Let's dive right in and talk about the three stories with Ryan today. I'll start out with the first story, which is the Optus breach. I think, uh, Ryan, you pointed this out in one of our team chats uh, early this week. Yeah. So for oh, go ahead. For those in the U.S. who don't know Optus, uh, just so you know, Optus is a kind of a cellular. I think that the top, the second biggest cellular company in Australia. So this breach uh, is affecting our Australian uh, customers probably quite a bit, and some of our partners there, and many people in Australia that use Optus as a cellular service. Uh, interesting breach. Basically, on Thursday, the twenty-third. Optus disclosed that they had suffered a security incident. They they didn't share a whole lot of detail. Uh, I think they talked about how it was a sophisticated breach, but they didn't say how, and we'll get into whether that's true or not later. And they did mention that it might uh, have uh, the breach uh, resulted in an information disclosure of some sort, but they didn't share a lot of data there. I will say on the 26th, uh, their kind of uh, security alert was updated with a post from the Australian Federal Police. So they this breach was big enough, and we'll talk about the size of it in a second, that uh, they have gotten the help of Australia. Australian law enforcement, who is also apparently partnering with overseas law enforcement to uh, investigate this. Uh, they call the Operation Operation Hurricane, I guess. I'm not sure how they picked that code name. Timely for U.S. citizens. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel kind of bad, though. <laughs> Are they joking yeah. about the crap in Florida? I'm kidding, yeah. So this morning, I was going to say this morning, they came out with another operation name, uh, Operation Guardian. Oh, I didn't hear that one. Yeah, I mean, just right before the podcast, it was uh, Operation Hurricane is who did it. Operation Guardian is let's protect who those affected, basically. So, Gotcha. Oh, that's interesting. And that makes sense. And by the way, uh, that even the Australian Federal Police getting involved, uh, if you read their AFP's kind of... Uh, uh, document about this, it sounds like they're doing something me and Mark talked about when we talked about our experience with the FBI CISO Academy. It sounds like at least in five eyes countries, what number of countries that partner with the US, it, it sounds like the law enforcement really understands that they have to have a good collaboration with the private organization to catch some of these hackers. So it sounds like Australia is doing that private public sector collaboration too. Uh, that said, they kind of are supporting Optus not sharing a ton of data yet. You know, they're talking about 
it being an ongoing investigation and that's why they're not directly disclosing detail about stolen data or some of the details yet. Uh, what is interesting though, is I think we know a little bit about this, right? Ryan from the underground, what was the site that I think they posted some information on? I believe on? it was breached forums. Yeah. Uh, for folks listening, breach.to is a site that is an underground. I don't recommend going to that URL uh, unless you know what you're doing. You know, be safe. Know about JavaScript. Uh, you know, I don't think they outwardly try to hack you on that site, uh, but you might want to use proxies. It is a underground, uh, but I do like sharing information about where you can find information if you have your own threat intelligence team. So, well-known underground. It's the one that was taken over from Raid Forms, basically a copy of Raid Forms when the FBI took it down. I still wonder if it really is just the FBI front that's put back up to see if they can catch more folks. But this threat actor uh, released uh, basically uh, this breach data to try to sell it and to talk about the extortion had a post on uh, breach.to where we did learn a little bit about what was stolen. And it's because the threat actor originally put up 10,000 sample records. So some of the data in those sample records were things like names, dates of birth, phone numbers, email addresses for a subset of customers. But most concerningly, and maybe this has to do with uh, them being a cellular company, but ID documents such as a driver's license or international passport numbers. So it really is, you know, based on the 10K subset that they released, this is really some pretty sensitive data, really everything you would need in Australia for ID theft. I guess the good news is it doesn't include payment information like credit cards or password hashes that we know of yet. So not necessarily stealing any passwords that they can use somewhere else. But while Optus hasn't confirmed all of this, it's some pretty important data, even time zone gender data, I think Medicare data. It's interesting how much data about you this cellular company is asking for. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, still a lot of unknowns, too. I mean, we know all we know is what data was stolen. We don't know who like it's stolen from, who's affected. A lot of customer service backup that they're logging on their Twitter and everything. So and with the breach forums, make sure you're just using a VM at least. I mean, yeah, I, I recommend VPN or proxies. And I you've heard us talk about no script before. I don't like to let websites run script until I whitelist it. So those are my recommendations. Now that said, the original post shared a 10K sample. And by the way, this threat actor was extorting them for a million dollars. And his the extortion, I guess I shouldn't say he, he or she, their extortion was if you don't give us a million dollars, we're going to release 10,000K a day. But here's where it gets interesting and there'd be stuff to talk about, Ryan, because I think just hours after suddenly the post changed and it went to, uh, hey, uh, we're not going to share any more of this data. Uh, too many eyes are on this uh, it, and we withdraw the extortion demand. And I think the threat actor even apologized. Yes. So <laughs> I think that's freaking crazy. I mean, it's uh, it obviously this threat actor noticed right away that the authorities in the world noticed this and he freaked out and got scared. And thus, he's like, oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. Ignore this. It never happened. But I call it a little BS. What do you think about these hackers now? And I think it's happened in other cases, too. Colonial Pipeline, where suddenly they, they seem to be fine being asshole criminals. But, but of course, they tuck their tail as soon as, you know, the authorities get involved. 
it, it's hard to know. I'll say that uh, it looks like, assumingly, that they kind of realized what they did was getting a lot of attention. They're like, oh, wait, I don't want this money. I don't want the attention. I'm going to go to jail or something like that. Or, But it, it's impossible to know, right? Uh, yeah, we're I speculating on their yeah. motive. Part of yeah. it, I think, has to do with how easy it was to breach. And then they published it, not knowing how big it was going to be. Like, oh, this was simple. I'm just going to publish it and get some money. And We'll just, talk yeah. about that next, by the way. Yeah, and I, I do notice on some of the forums that, the, you know, we're a bunch of nerds, so we are on, on Reddit and cybersecurity forums. And some folks say that, oh, maybe the company paid the extortion and this is their way of, you know, they just don't want the world to know they paid and that's why the threat actor clammed up. I'm not sure if I believe that camp. I think it's more they're scared by the attention, but speculation, like you say. That said, that is a big question. How did this breach happen? One of the things in Optus's early thing, and I guess it's kind of boilerplate nowadays, every company calls their breach sophisticated, uh, maybe a way to try to pretend that it was not negligence. Uh, we don't officially know how this happened, except that there's some security journalists. One, some of this content seems to come from an insider, that this was just a, a new API. They have an API. Uh, an unauthenticated API, if I understand correctly, doesn't require any login at all. That's connected directly to their full customer database. And uh, so the, the rumor is that this kid just scraped all this data through a insecure, badly designed public API. And you know, while we don't know the exact flaw, the people that are describing it are, are calling it kind of like, OWASP 101 negligence. They're not uh, OWASP, by the way, for those who don't know, Open Web Application Security Project. So all the ways you're supposed to secure web applications and APIs, these web APIs are essentially web applications too. So there's a lot of content in on OWASP on, on how you can secure APIs as well. But this could just be a, a simply badly designed API that had full connection to their customer database, making it really more a script kitty hack as I think you alluded to, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, from what I've read, there was an API that was exposed to the internet, so already kind of not good. Um, but it was unauthenticated, so I mean, anyone can just log in and see. But And then it's connected to a customer database, so you get like the daisy chain of, of mistakes there. And I would but. say APIs exposed to the internet are not bad. Like it's, it, APIs are, de are, are designed to be so that you can integrate with external parties, but they should have authenticate. I, I mean, just like everything else, you don't want an API that just gives keys to your kingdom. They, they sh it should be limited in the commands someone can run through an API. Most APIs are authenticated. Like we connect to many threat intelligence APIs, but we have to have a, a identification key a, that we use to log in as us to get access. And even then the API only gives us access to a limited subset of whatever service we're getting. So, you know, there's APIs can be exposed to the internet. Some of them are by design so that you can integrate, but it's, it's like any web application interface, you should only expose to your external customers and the internet what you want all of the internet getting. And that should not be your entire customer database. <laughs> 
That's what I meant to say. I misspoke yeah. a little bit, but yes, it, it was just kind of like a daisy chain. Yeah, we'll keep monitoring. I will say I wasn't able to set it up for this, but for the listeners, I would love to get Australian perspective. And luckily, one of our Australian partners reached out. So perhaps next podcast, I might be able to do a little update for a few minutes where I chat with him to get the Australian perspective on this and how it's affecting him. So something to hopefully look forward to next podcast. But let's talk about a few of the talking points. I mean, we'll continue to learn more about this breach. Uh, we'll get to takeaways for people that might be affected by it. But I guess the first question is, what do you think about the amount of information Optus is releasing right now? You know, so far, they've admitted to the breach pretty quickly. You know, I, they informed their customers, but they very transparently said that they're not sharing information about the type of contents yet or the way in. And it's in part because of the investigation. The AFP is backing them up. So do you have any? I definitely have thoughts on that based on experiences we've gone through. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, a lot of us do believe in mandatory customer disclosure, especially you need to give the customer enough information if they're affected to know how to help themselves. But some people want full transparency. What do you think about not having full transparency during an investigation? Uh, <sighs> Yeah, uh, there's some things you obviously can't say off the bat. I don't know exactly what details, but just based on the logistics and the PII associated with it, uh, I'd say it's hard to know, but uh, I will default to you on that. You're the decision maker here. <laughs> oh gosh, no, I want your opinion too. But I will say this is where I actually get a little lenient. Like I, I am a strong believer in customer disclosure. And here in the US, we have customer disclosure laws. But when you have serious threat actors and you get authorities involved, when there's an authority investigation, there's reasons that they don't want to tip their hand yet, especially if there's a chance that they, the, the, you know, the threat actor is still communicating, has a command and control channel. They, they basically don't want to spook bad guys right away. So what I am getting at is I think every company needs to follow the mandatory customer disclosure laws, but if there's a official police organization doing an investigation, they often have the right. And in a situation that happened to WatchGuard, we even had a Department of Justice order saying we can't really share data about this until the investigators are ready to. So I, I you know, everyone is upset that they haven't shared exactly what the PII is yet. And I guess I have to admit, sharing the contents of what that PII was, I don't know how that would affect an investigation necessarily. But I will give them some, uh, like I, I'll give them some breathing room if an investigation is ongoing. But I think whether or not they're sharing enough will be in time. Right now, the investigation is active, so I'm okay with them not sharing. But the question is, will they come out later and share more detailed information when they can? I hope so. Uh, Another thing, and I guess we forgot to mention, is you mentioned not knowing exactly what the scale of this breach is. So we know the threat actor only released 10K records. So only about 10,000 and a few hundred, I think it was 10,300 have been leaked so far. But how many did the threat actor steal? Uh, we do know that Optus has about 10 million customers according to public reports. So this could be a data breach of up to 10 million Australian users, but it gets a little worse than that because apparently we know that uh, Optus also retains ex-customer data. 
meaning obviously there's 9.9 million active people that use Optus as a cellular network, but they also have these similar records for people that might have left Optus years ago, but were ex-customers. So that brings up another kind of security question. Now, suddenly you're not an Optus customer anymore, but they still have your data, so you're affected by a breach. So it brings up company data retention. How long should companies retain data of people that have left their product or services? Do you have any thoughts on that, Ryan? Uh, I would say as long as you're kind of upfront, like in your terms, conditions or whatever, how long you're going to retain it, I don't see there being like an issue and as long as it's within regulations or compliance. But... I would say as long as you kind of say, hey, we're going to keep your data for 180 days, et cetera. As long that's, as it's not like, hey, forever, we're going to keep it forever or something. But So that's my my concern. I, I, I agree with you that there is reasoning that a company might have to keep X customer data for a little while. Like that doesn't mean they don't have a product that they still might want support with. You know, you might leave Microsoft for your new stuff, but you still have a Microsoft server sitting around. Uh, and... Uh, they should definitely follow the law. But my worry is more, you said 180 days. If they're only retaining customer data that long and then they purchase it, that actually I think would be a great security practice. If they're keeping it for multiple years, that's what I would worry about. But I do think companies, I, you know, I know this is where cybersecurity kind of conflicts with business wants to make money <laughs> and big data is one way they can make money. You know, and I, I get that there's reasonings business want all the data they can have about even ex customers on the hope to resell them. But as a security organization, you should be trying to minimize the amount of private data you have because it's a burden on you. It's a liability. I get that ex customer data might be a business value, but if you don't have an absolute business value, if you're just holding on to that data because of this, oh, it might be important later, you're probably putting more liability than you should have because it's PII. You need to protect it. There's laws about protecting that data. And so just from a cybersecurity perspective, I think any data that you don't need that's sensitive to someone else, you want to purge that as often as you can. Yeah, I would say, it, but you can get into the problems of, let's say, in the Optus circumstance, you have someone that wants, or AFP wants to say, hey, I want this person's data for a legal issue, criminal issue. Uh, it was about 180 days ago, and they don't have that data anymore. That's where it becomes a problem then, too. So comes a problem for legal, but I would argue for privacy some that times that good. That, that depends on your 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 political feeling of how much data. Like I think we all want to help law enforcement catch the bad guys, but we also want to maintain at least the free democratic companies want to maintain the privacy of law-abiding citizens. So I think there's some argument and there's some companies like Apple and others that are purposely trying to do things in a way where they don't have access to the customer data. You know, at the San Bernardino case with the iPhone is one of the examples and the way they designed their cloud now where only me as an Apple customer have private keys. If I somehow lose the private keys of my iCloud data, Apple can't get it back for me because they, they could probably share the encrypted blob, but they can't decrypt the data for me. So I would argue that some companies actually like the fact that, hey, I can't respond to this because 
I only retain data for 180 days. And, you know, there's not much the government can do about that if that's their their official policy. And they can subpoena Apple for data they have. But if Apple's encryption says, hey, I, I have the data, but I don't have the encryption keys that's in the customer's hands, kind of protects the business. At that point, if the law enforcement wants that data, they have to go to the actual individual they're getting the data for and get a warrant for that individual's data. Which makes sense to me, right? If they're trying to get that data, it's probably either a criminal or a good guy that can help. So why not ask the individual that owns the data rather than the company? So interesting thing, but I will say from a security perspective, there's data you want to retain like logs so you can do investigation. But for personal data, if you don't need it, don't don't put a burden of yourself of having to protect something you don't need. Get rid of anything you sensitive you don't need because then you don't have to worry about protecting it. Uh, I guess uh, we kind of uh, talked a little bit about API and, and the hacker apologizing, which I just think is silly and ironic. But I guess the next last topic on this is, and this is just speculation because we still really don't know for sure if it was the API thing, but but was Optus negligent? I, I see a lot of comments on the people talking about this, basically trying to, you know, like they, it seemed like Op, Optus is kind of hiding what was a really stupid mistake. And they claimed it was a sophisticated attack. Uh, I know this is all speculation, but any thoughts on that, Ryan? I mean, you can't really say someone's negligent if you don't have all the evidence in front of you, right? That's so, excellent. I, I, I That really is the most logical thing. Good. I, mean, I can't get you in. You're a good person to put in front of media, right? <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, I, I do think if it is as simple an API flaw, they really do need to think about their API security. But I'm actually with you. I don't think I think it's too early to judge. I, I do think that I mean, the AFP is involved, uh, the Australian Federal Police, and we'll see what they think. You know, I'm sure they will have a view of what was done well or not. And and we'll see if, uh, you know, there is compliance in Australia for certain levels of security. So we'll see what happens then. The last thing I want to leave the audience with in Australia specifically is what can people do about this? If you're an Optus customer, you're worried about this. What can you do about it? Do you have any takeaways or suggestions? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of posts, the police, I believe Optus themselves, idcare.org, which is a website, they all have information on what you should do. And I mean, I don't have a lot of information on how Australia functions identity wise and all that. So I would say just heed to their warnings and default to them. So, so it really comes, this is an ID theft issue. Someone has some personal information. There's probably nothing direct to you. They can, like, it's not your password. They can't log in as you, but for ID theft, they have enough information to sign up for new accounts to maybe try to open a line of credit online, uh, things to do. And I think you gave the best first tip, which is in Australia, we do know that www.idcare.org is like a nice public government based site. And as soon as you log into that, I think you'll immediately get a pop up saying if you're here for the Optus breach, click here and they'll give you stuff. But it really comes down to the one on one for all ID theft situation. Monitor your existing accounts for any weird stuff that's happening, you know, financial accounts like credit cards and debt and other accounts. Just look for weird things. 
Be on the lookout for phishing and scammers. They know about this Optus breach. They might know information about you now, like your gender, uh, your Medicare ID. So if you suddenly get emails that pretend to come from Medicare saying, hello, Susan, blah, 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 you know, be a little more skeptical of it. It could actually be them using this data to try to fish you. Uh, look out for new names, new accounts in your name. So just put some sort of monitoring to look for new lines of credit or accounts. There's plenty of companies out there that have ID theft protection services where they will monitor for you. The one place, maybe I'll ask a, a dean or our Australian guest next week. I don't know the exact specifics of how to do it in Australia. I think Equifax is there too. But we in the U.S. had a huge Equifax breach uh, that pretty much every U.S. adult was affected. And they're one of the three credit unions that you can open new line or that, that will check your credit when you're opening new credit. The best thing to do, in my opinion, is to have a 100% freeze on your credit at all times. And in the US, that involves going to all three credit agencies. You have to do all three because unfortunately we have three and you have to put a freeze on your credit. It is a kind of inconvenience thing because one day if you want to buy a house or take a car loan or open up a credit card, you have to actively go to all three and temporarily unfreeze your credit. But ever since the Equifax breach, they've made it much easier to quickly turn on and off online. Nowadays, when you unfreeze it, you can you can schedule it and say, I only want this to happen for the next three weeks and then freeze it again. But freezing your credit ensures that a, a ID thief, someone that's stolen all this information, can't open any account. They can't do you. You won't be able to open an account until you unfreeze it. So those are some of the tips I, I would do. Obviously, there'll be some Australian specific ways to do it. And idcare.org is the best place to go. Cool. So let's move on to the next uh, story. And this, uh, I'm interested in your take on this one because this is talking about malware. And on, in some ways, this malware isn't unique. It does something we see a lot in malware. But I think it's kind of interesting in the way it's delivered as malware as a service, lowering the bar for everyone. So we're here to talk about Erbium. I think that's how you would pronounce it. Erbium is a name of malware. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So two organizations have reported it. I think an organization called Cluster 25 found it first, at least re released an advisory for it first in September. And then a week later, Cypherma released an, an updated advisory about it also in September. Uh, that said, in their advisories, they mentioned they noticed this kind of uh, in the middle of August, I think the 22nd or something like that. So a piece of, uh, you know, Ryan is a great guest this week as he's a malware analyst himself. So he knows this kind of stuff a lot. But Erbium is password or info stealing malware. That's nothing new. You know, a lot of uh, what is one of it? Is it uh, red lines uh, is one of red them. Red stealer. Yeah. 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 So there, there's lots of password stealers out there. And by the way, when I, I, I should say info stealer, because while these are designed to get passwords, they steal a ton of information. So let's just start with what it does. If you do get this malware, uh, you know, it's going to look at browser data. It's it's really plugged into Chrome or Chromium, which are Chrome variants of, of other browsers. So it will plug into that 
that to try to pull your Chrome cookies, which includes session IDs. Might it, it, it can watch password autofills, uh, any autofills at all get credit cards. So it steals a lot of passwords, cookies, and other information that you might fill out as you're browsing in Chrome. It's designed to steal cryptocurrency in many different ways. Uh, if you're going online, it has it, it will monitor Chrome's browser extensions. A lot of the online wallets will use browser extensions for things, so it will try to steal data there. But it also looks for like 20 or 30 uh, cold wallets too. So just a couple examples is Exodus, Atomic, Bitcoin, Ethereum has their own cold wallet. These are all programs you'd have running locally on your computer to have this cold offline, not totally offline because it's on your computer. It's not a truly offline wallet, but it if you have a local wallet, it can try to steal some of your wallet data there. Uh, a number of 2FA codes, again, just a few examples, but that steals many more. Tresner, EOS Authenticator, Authy, uh, these are all products that have 2FA and might have a local client. It can try to capture the, the one-time passwords or the codes sent to those. Uh, it looks for Telegram, Auth files, Steam and Discord tokens, and like all malware, it takes occasional screenshots of your monitor to help with this type of stuff. So typical info stealer. But what's interesting to me is this is malware as a service. This is sold on forums, including breach.to. I think this particular one seems to be mostly sold on Russian speaking forums, although breach.to is one you can also find it that's English speaking. And based on both strings in the malware and, and the posts on these forums, I think people think it's a Russian speaking author. Uh, but basically this is a product, uh, what I think is interesting about malware as a service is unfortunately really lowers the bar of, of cyber criminals that may not be sophisticated enough to code, but can buy really cheap malware toolkits. So for not, this, this product used to cost $9 a week. It recently did a had a price increase to about $100 a month or $1,000 a year. But for that, anyone can get a toolkit that can that can deliver new variants of this malware, all the back-end communication tools you need for it, and the threat actor, the actual malware author, includes support and updates to the malware too. So it's it's kind of a professional level malicious business going on. And part of why that cost is, you know, a thousand a year might sound expensive, but uh, one interesting thing about this malware is it's about one third of the cost of other malware families we've seen, like the one you mentioned before, uh, the, Red I already Steel. forget it, Redline Stealer. So it's, it's, it's quite a bit most. cheaper. That's interesting. We've had it in our report too. So uh, any comments so far? Anything you want to share about this particular malware? Or I, I'm interested just in malware as a service in general. Yeah, so I went and downloaded the sample the other night to see kind of what was going on with it. And immediately what struck me is it it reminded me of uh, Orky or, or Oski, Oski Stealer, I believe it was, uh, and Mars Stealer. It reminded me exactly like it. Yeah, I wrote about Mars in our blog there, but... I mean, it steals pretty much everything in your browser, uh, cookies, history data, uh, crypto wallets, and a lot of crypto wallets, they'll store the browser extension like in the browser or in a folder on your computer or have your private key so it can just pull it right out. And those are actually hot wallets. The only cold wallets that you named are Trezor and Ledger. And basically cold wallet, they store the key on like the little fob, the little device. And then yeah, they yeah. export the key when you need it. A truly offline wallet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so say, hey, uh, you're signing this transaction, this crypto transaction. 
and the treasurer will export the key just for that transaction and then not again. So they could steal that if they have some type of like a monitoring service on there, like spyware. Um, but all those, yeah, they just steal the browser. It reminds me of ASCII and Mars a lot. Were those so. ones sold as a service or were those ones Mars and ASCII? So. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of them are. So Redline is a malware as a service as well. And I yep, see it. that's the sure. one I see the absolute most for like for certain. And so let's talk about how malware can distribute in many ways. And I'm sure even this one, uh, Rubium, will, will, will be distributed in lots of different ways. But right now, the way it seems to be distributed is, is in anyone doing malicious things with games. So it, it, it comes either in pirated games, game cracks. You know, cracking tools are, of course, tools designed to get past the, the copyright protection of a game. But also in a lot of cheat programs. So... The, the dorks out there, sorry, I won't use a very bad word, but I, I do not like cheaters. Uh, a lot of people will load tools where they can see through walls in Call of Duty or get automatic headshots. So uh, if, if you're one of those people out there that think you're getting a game for free by pirating it, or you're, you, you want to beat all your friends without actually having any skill with one of these cheats and you think that's free, it, it seems to be a common way to, it's definitely how Iribium is being distributed right now. And I, I think actually, Ryan, I, I, I assume you have seen that commonly too in past malware. A lot, yeah. So the key generators is what we call, we call them pup key gens, which is a potentially unwanted program, a key gen. And then cracks, we see those a lot. I mean, probably the second most after Redline or something. But. I always forget it is a KV. There's a particular cracking group that is Pirates Windows all the time, and they have yep. it's a similar to a KGN, Auto KMS, and it's it's even a, while it's not as as bad as browser scripts, it's it's it has a section in the most in, in one of the common ways malware gets distributed. So, Auto KMS is a uh, signature that a lot of AVs use to describe basically free Microsoft services, so like free Office or free Excel or like key, key generators that, it, yeah. that generate keys for those services. By the way, there's a, there's a lit legitimate Microsoft KMS, right? The, the way Windows now does online checks to make sure your key's legitimate every so often. And it, the way it does it is goes to their key management server, I think is what KMS stands for. So auto KMS is just having a local pirated copy of the online cloud-based thing that Microsoft's trying to use to legitimize your windows. You may not know it's happening behind the scenes, but it is. Uh, so that's why they call it auto KMS. It's just copying Microsoft's official online approval process. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, I, I guess not much else. It is, so it sounds like pretty typical at the, the high level of things. I think the, the two key things are expect this to spread because it's malware as a service. I do think the fact that it's lower, as you mentioned, redline stealer, very, very common. So imagine a new one that is only one third the cost. I suspect that means we'll probably see more of this Iribium pop up. Uh, the C2, I guess we haven't talked about it. It's I also, nothing that new there. Uh, all of these have command and control channels and they have these dashboards, web-based dashboards that the actual attacker can see the results. You know, it's kind of like a Tableau business dashboard for, but for malware. I will say their UI is nice. They tend to nowadays have APIs, so they, they make it easy for you to integrate other things. Uh, they seem to be leveraging Discord as one of the, you know, Discord's content delivery network as part of their communication. 
And I think, yeah, yeah. And as far as buying, paying for it, I think the the service is administrated through a Telegram bot. So they use Telegram for communication and and automate with a bot to to get new customer malicious customers. So not not that new not new necessarily, but just know malware as a service is increasing the amount of malware. It's lowering the bar for even non technical criminals being able to participate. And as these malware as a services drop in price, I think the amount of the malware we see will will be blowing up. Uh, I guess takeaways. This I'm going to entirely give to you. Malware, <laughs> Iribium, what should people do to avoid it? How can they protect themselves from crap like this? Uh, well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still just malware. So anything that just prevents malware. Uh, personally, you, I mean, a lot of it gets delivered via phishing. So, I mean, just be cognizant of what you're clicking on, uh, do a lot of phishing tests, make sure you just email etiquette, I guess you could say. Um, that's the main one because phishing, like I said, it's, it's delivered the most. Uh, besides that, make sure you have antivirus updated, things like that. Uh, don't download files that look suspicious. Don't go on any websites that look suspicious. I mean, it's just common netiquette, I guess you could call it. And I would recommend, I, I'll be not afraid to even uh, to market our own products, but definitely have endpoint and network-based malware. At least endpoint if you're a home user, but network and endpoint combined together for malware prevention helps. Um, malware prevention, like if you want to get nerdy, there's lots of different ways to detect malware. Some are more proactive than others. You know, signatures catch the noise. Machine learning can sometimes pick up some new stuff and behavioral analysis tends to pick up the most. At the end of the day, though, some sneak past all of that. So even have human researchers being part of that is important. So make sure you have a good endpoint protection solution. Uh, I, I won't be hesitant to say that I love WatchGuard EPDR and we have all of those different ways of catching malware, including one of my favorite parts, which is the attestation service. In the, the case that uh, one of the things I love about our protection is we don't say maybe it's malware, maybe it's not. We don't have this middle of this is suspicious, but we don't know. If you turn on our best feature, we're going to make sure every file gets called good or bad, depending on if it's bad. We don't always know right away. You know, signatures don't always find it. So we will submit it to the cloud and do lots of machine learning and behavioral analysis tests. But at the end of the day, if even all our fancy proactive automated malware detection doesn't catch it, there's something like I think it's 0.02% that needs a human analyst. You're hearing the guy right now that might get that file. And we have, a, I think, like a, a very quick turnaround SLA on that, too. So at the end of the day, there will be a human that will look at that file and will make that decision in the most, the, the hardest cases or the most sophisticated malware that, that automated techniques didn't find. So have a solution like that. Can't, uh, can't recommend WatchGuard EPDR enough. Uh, I will say the last tip for folks that have cryptocurrency, do know all malware is targeting it. And I think Ryan gave the bet, you really should be using a, a truly offline wallet or one that has a truly offline component. So I think the one, like you just said, having a, a actual fob uh, that is uh, you know, protecting that private key like Tresnor, like you said, is pretty important. So this last one we can probably get through fast since there's not a ton of takeaway here, but I think it's it's always nice. We're talking about all this crappy stuff that happens with breaches and new attacks in zero day. And we always love to see the, the good guys. So 
Uh, just at the end of the week, you guys will be hearing this Monday, but we recorded at the end of last week. Just at the end of uh, on Thursday, we learned that the FBI has arrested an ex NSA employee for selling secrets to a supposed Russian nation state. So I thought this was a, just a cool information, uh, a cool win. And what I think is especially cool is this wasn't that they they this was a sting operation. So basically, we learned about this because this ex former NSA employee was in court on Thursday, and I, I think the actual uh, full information about the arrest or and the charges came out on the twenty eighth uh, versus the twenty ninth is when he is in court. And he was in court for selling national defense information. And the way it was found out is basically, I'm not sure how the FBI knew to target this guy, but an FBI agent posed as a Russian operative and basically gave this guy an opportunity to sell information to, to them. So the person's name is Jara Sebastian Dalk. They're a 30-year-old. Uh, it's interesting that they were an uh, employee of the NSA, but only for three weeks. So uh, Dolk was apparently hired as an information system security designer. Uh, kind of ironic that he is supposed to be a cybersecurity person protecting the NSA. Uh, had the job for three weeks and left. Don't know any details why, but that right away, uh, I'll wait till the talking points, but that's interesting to me that this person that's selling data joined for three weeks and left. But in either case, apparently, I would guess, because uh, some of the FBI and the, the legal documents talk about Dalk was trying to reach out to sell data through multiple uh, channels, including kind of Russian-owned tour sites. So maybe that's how the authorities found out. Uh, but then basically, uh, one of the FBI agents posed as a Russian operative, uh, said they wanted to buy the data. Dalk was asking for $85,000. Uh, there's about three different sensitive documents that they, they talked about selling to start. Uh, Dalk was asking for his payment in cryptocurrency, and he apparently went to this location in Denver that they agreed to meet, thinking he was meeting the Russian agent uh, he was going to sell information to. And oops, was the FBI agent. <laughs> Too bad, so sad. Uh, so Dalk all this happened in three weeks, you said? Uh, three weeks is how long this guy was part of the NSA. I think this operation may have happened over months, but okay. Dalk was only an employee of the NSA for three weeks. So the reason I so let's get to, real quick. I will say he's been charged with three violations of the Espionage Act. And by the way, this is espionage. So punishments are things like death or life in prison. So just talk a little bit about this. I think ultimately this is a good thing because we caught somebody. But the first thing, and this is purely speculation, but I find it interesting that he is only part of the NSA for three weeks. So speculation, but That's weird. had this guy <laughs> planned to like, was this his reasoning for becoming part of the NSA in the first place? You know, we see all these movies about insiders going bad and selling information. And we're always shown, oh, they started as good guys, but they got cynical and they weren't treated well and spent years in the NSA and didn't get that promotion. And then they turned into the, the illegal trader that sold information. This guy only took three weeks before he quit and started selling data. So I can't help but speculate, did he plan on it? I mean, is that his point of trying to get hired just to get access to data and then leave? 
it, it, I'm guessing it takes a lot to get on as an NSA cybersecurity professional. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of work. So it, it is very odd. You that, have to you pass know, a polygraph, a right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it almost has to be deliberate. And they immediately, I'm guessing, immediately somewhat went to sell this data to a known adversary. It just seems all very direct. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. But the bigger thing I want to talk about is the insider threat. You know, often our podcasts are talking about external attackers, you know, cyber criminals that break in through, through remote means. This is the insider threat. You know, I'm glad the FBI caught this guy, but this is the kind of thing that's harder to catch. So do you have any thoughts on protecting against insider threats? You know, how, how do you find the person that, you know, for all you know, you, you hired them maybe to be part of security and they're supposed to be the good guys helping you out. In reality, they're they're stealing information. I would say, I mean, arguably, that's probably the hardest thing to catch, right? Because it's someone that you've basically trusted somewhat. Say, hey, here's the keys to the kingdom type thing. Um, we trust you to you know, use our data safely, securely, but... Yeah, I, I think the only thing I HR can... HR related stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, so I, 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 that's what I was going to get to. The two things are vetting, and I, I think it's the responsibility of HR, but also the hiring, like like whether that, maybe that's a question. Should cybersecurity, some, some method of security be part of hiring for every department? But I do think HR has things for background checks. This is where I have privacy. I, I think privacy is important. So I think there's a balance of, of respecting people's privacy, but I think things like background checks and looking at social media, there are things you do have to do in this day and age to make sure the person you're hiring is trustworthy. I don't think we have to go through government level. And it obviously, even in the government level, as you said, NSA probably has one of the most rigorous vetting and background check processes. We know for these government jobs, they do polygraphs, they do drug testing all the time. They look not just at you, but at your connections because they're worried about whether or not you're vulnerable to bribing. They look at your finances. Like if you're in a lot of debt, that could be a risk to you because they know you're you you could be sensitive to bribing and and you know you have a reason for for wanting extra money. Uh, they definitely look for highly leveraged debt or situations where you know someone knows stuff about you. So I don't think a business needs to go to the NSA or, or government level of that, but I do think that's a reality of hiring today that you really have to do that. But I think the other thing I would put is zero trust. We talk about zero trust on this. We need to realize our employees are trusted to some extent. They've gone through a vetting process. We want to trust them, but it's a trust, but verify it. Why should an employee have access to anything they don't need for their job? Even if it's a trust employee that, that has gone through a great vetting process, if they're an accountant, they shouldn't have access to source code servers. And if they're a developer, they shouldn't have access to finance servers. So I think the other thing you just need to do, inside threats exist, uh, but zero trust, minimizing the bare minimum per permissions that an employee needs to do their job is the best way to handle it. Don't just give everybody access to everything simply because they work for you. You know, Limit trust internally as well. So those are my two things.
I do want to tack on a little extra story, and I guess this gets gossipy, but we're, while we're talking about these insiders, I, I do think there's a difference between a whistleblower and an insider. Although, and, and typically I think there's some positive things for whistleblowers, but uh, I'm starting to, to change my opinion on one particular one. It just happens that in the same week that the FBI caught this NSA insider, Snowden, Edward Snowden, well-known whistleblower, was an NSA employee at one time, but then an NSA contractor and, and leaked a whole bunch of sensitive U.S. government information. Uh, apparently, Snowden got Russian citizenship this week. Uh, have any yeah, thoughts on that, know. Ryan? I... <laughs> I think I personally think Putin is trolling, but I don't know. <laughs> it bugs me. I, I'll have to admit, I know everyone's different. I, I talk to intelligence community now and I know why they really don't like Snowden. But I do think everything I listened to about Snowden before, I, I have some love for whistleblowers. I do feel like he thought that in our our constant pendulum of giving the state enough power to catch criminals versus protecting the privacy of normal citizens, it feels like some of the capabilities were getting a little too far on one side. So I, I was one of the people that kind of believed Snowden in in his his reason of doing, I'm doing this because I love America and I want his us to make sure to control right. it. it. It felt yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, and I've protected him in some ways or not protected him. I've shared that opinion for a long time. But now that he has a like, I also understand why he's in Russia, because, you know, he uh, until the U.S. government suggests that they're considering him a whistleblower and not just a traitor, it's dangerous for him. But now that he, I, I never expected him to become a Russian citizen, though. So I have to admit becoming a Russian citizen especially right now during a freaking Ukrainian conflict, I now I got to admit, I don't trust him as much. So I, I, I'm this is just pure personal opinion, but I it, it did change my perspective on Snowden a little bit. I mean, maybe they Putin uh, made him a citizen to send him to war or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's going to be conscripted like everybody else. I don't know. That, that would be ironic. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I, I don't know what the reasoning would be, though, because I don't think he expects uh, Snowden to be a, a hot fighter. And I don't think the U.S. would care if Snowden was sent to war. So he, he, wouldn't get, he wouldn't get anything from the U.S. by sending Snowden to war. <laughs> yeah, I just don't. The reasoning behind this citizenship is just... There's just like, there's no reason for it. So it almost has to be trolling, right? Uh, to me, it just puts him in more risk. Like he's he's supposed to be this guy that's saying, I did this for good reasons for the US and I'm living in Russia just because I have to, but I'm separated from the Russian government. But now that he's a citizen, I feel like he's going to be more pressured to share information with them. So it's a little harder to trust his motives now, in my opinion. Anyways, I I don't consider him an insider yet. I think he was a whistleblower, but I think a lot of law enforcement probably consider him an insider as well. Cool. Well, that's the stories. Thanks for chatting with me about him, Ryan. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. Hey again, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach us on Twitter. Mark is at XORRO underscore, and you can find me as SecAdept. And you can reach the both of us or our podcast at the hashtag The443Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you'll hear from us next week. 
what is our clean suits? <laughs> I was thinking like those big old yellow bio things. Like the biohazard we're talking, suits? Okay. Yeah, I should have okay. said biohazard suits. I was like, yeah. I was like, what is a clean suit? <laughs>